Hi, everybody. Happy summer-ish. Um, thank you, you also. Um, yeah, so I'm David. Uh, my family and I have been around this church for a while, and every once in a while I get to preach. So today's one of those once in a while. So it'll be fun. Um, Man, okay, so last week we finished up our uh, series that we were doing on encouragement, and our friend Nicole Bullock did, um, and uh, yeah, seriously, I, um, I, had, I had my uh, animal print heels pulled out because I wanted to like feel some of the mojo that she was bringing, but I thought that would require a whole different sermon, so... I didn't do that, but man, that was so good. And uh, we are diving into a new series today uh, that is going to be looking at the entirety of Scripture. Whew. So we are going to pray because we need to do that. Um, but I also wanted to pray specifically, sorry, um, for our youth. Um, our Echo uh, team is on their way back, but they've been at a retreat all week uh, with lots of kids. And one of the things we strongly believe around here is that one of our kingdom responsibilities is to be raising up some revolutionary kids that can further the kingdom vision out into the culture that seems to be pushing back ever stronger. Amen? So let's pray together over this message and for our youth together. Father God, Thank you that you show up as a lion who can battle for us, but the way you battle looks like a lamb who suffers for us. God, we are grateful that you teach us how to live. Um, God, we pray over the youth that are on their way back. God, we thank you for this weekend. God, we pray that the decisions, the words, the messages, the, the things that you spoke to them, that they would take root in their hearts. God, we pray that these students would come back and see you in a fresh way, that they would speak with you and hear from you. And God, that you would empower them to live out the kingdom and all the communities they're a part of and the schools they're a part of. And God, we pray that your kingdom would expand through these students. Lord, we thank you. God, would you guide this message? Would you be in the midst of it? We, we pray an unleashing of your spirit to speak. We love you, God. Amen. Amen. Uh, so it is summer, officially, I think, which is why we're starting our summer series. Um, I know it's summer uh, because of two main things. Uh, the first reason I know it's summer is because I am well on my way to a horrendous farmer's tan, which is my, my goal every summer, is to play enough baseball and golf that it's just inappropriately horrendous. Um, the other reason uh, that I know it's summer is that if you're like me and you have kids in school, it is a bummer. Um, they are not going back for three months. So just buckle up. It's, oh, teach, I know, teachers. Yay, good for you. But, uh, <laughs> we need a 12-month school year. Uh, all right, so it is summer, and we are diving into this series that we're calling Long Story Short. And our goal this summer, which is going to be really fun, is to go through the whole Bible. 
in the summer, which if you know anything about Greg's ability to stay on task, we'll probably get to like Joshua. Um, But the goal is the whole Bible in a summer. And what we're going to do is as we talk about the Bible, we're going to uh, use this analogy of DNA because DNA, um, the formation of DNA, like if you look at it, has this double helix formation. So it's got kind of two parts intertwining with each other that carry all of our genetic code And we believe that there is a similar DNA-like through line throughout Scripture and that the DNA of Scripture is encompassed in two main concepts, covenant and kingdom. And so as we dive through this summer, we're going to be asking the question as we look at the parts of Scripture, where do we see covenant and where do we see kingdom? And as we go into that, uh, it's the reason why today's sermon is called Bible DNA, that, that the, the whole idea of it is that we want to keep our eyes alert to these through lines as we go through Scripture. And we're, we're going to be looking at Scripture both from a microscopic level, so we're going to like focus in on stories of creation and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and, uh, but then we're also going to kind of back up and say, okay, where's the through line? of kingdom, where's the through line of covenant as we look at each one of these stories throughout the summer. So just to kind of get us off on the right foot, um, when we talk about covenant around here, that's just the way the Bible defines relationship. So if we want to know what covenant is, we're talking relationship. And in scripture, what relationship means is that we have been told who we are by a good, good God. That we have an identity that cannot be changed, that cannot be moved, that cannot be rocked because God says who we are and it is out of that relationship that we live. And that sin is not about doing the wrong things, that sin is when that relationship gets all messed up. So our, our job and our hope is that in that relationship, we would walk out in a consistent manner to keep the relationship rather than falling into sin, which is when that relationship gets all messed up. So we're going to talk about what, what God's covenant relationships are with us and what ours with, are with others. But then we're going to talk about this theme of kingdom. And for our purposes, kingdom we're just going to define as how the Bible talks about responsibility. So we have this responsibility that in a kingdom, there is a king, which is God, but, but God has said, I'm not going to take all the authority and the power. I'm going to actually empower you and give you a responsibility to live out what your vocational calling is as people of the kingdom of God. So we are going to look at these themes of covenant and kingdom throughout the summer. And well, one of the things that's important to know is that throughout scripture, kingdom always follows covenant, not the other way around, that, that, that God says, I'm going to come into a relationship with you and it is out of that covenantal relationship, I'm going to give you something meaningful to do. I'm going to give you a kingdom responsibility and ra- rather than us feeling like we need to get our act together before God is okay with us, God says, you're already okay with me and now I've got something meaningful for you to do. So, We are going to start off today by looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and asking the question, where do we see covenant and kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2? And if you're doing the math, um, we're doing two chapters today and we're doing the whole Bible this summer. So 
We're already behind. But we decided it was important to start there because if you mess up the beginning of the story, you really miss what's happening in the remainder of the story. That, That if we don't get a picture and a vision that is solid in our head of like, here's what God's design and hope and prayer and wish for us was, that we don't see the contrast. We don't see how it all gets messed up as we go further down the line. So we have got some work to do today, and uh, we we have some learning to do. Are you ready for some learning this morning? Uh, So uh, I counted it up. We have 10 Hebrew words we need to learn this morning. I know, only you can handle it. Um, We have some theology to learn this morning, and I have some very lame and outdated cultural references that I will be sharing with you as a gift. So... Here's where we're going to go. So we are going to start out in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to talk about what God's beautiful vision is for creation through the lens of covenant and kingdom. So we're going to start uh, in Genesis 1, but the structure that I want to use today um, for you type A people so you know where we're going is we're going to talk about two parts or two echoes of covenant in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we are going to talk about two echoes of kingdom responsibility in Genesis 1 and 2. Then we're going to wrap up at the end of Genesis 2 and talk about this first covenant between humanity. So, starting in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, here's our first text. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, which is our our first Hebrew word, the word selim, according to our likeness, which is the word demut. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, his tselem. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now the first kind of like Bible thing that we need to notice about this is that whenever you're reading verses and you see something repeated a lot of times, Uh, It's sort of like a megaphone trying to tell us to wake up and pay attention that like, okay, you were made in the image of God. You were made in the likeness of God. You were made in the image of God, the image of God. There's something core about what it means to be made in the image of God. And and, and the blessing and curse sort of is that um, if we were to look at all the theology texts that have been written on what it means to be made in the image of God, they would not fit on this stage. That it is a massive topic that has been delved into by theologians for thousands of years now. And so what we're going to do is focus on three aspects of what it might mean to be made in the image of God and how that relates to our covenant relationship with God. So the first one we're going to look at is um, it's looking at this word demut, which gets translated as likeness. Um, But but I want to talk about it in the context of parenting because that's something I'm all too familiar with. And later on in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 5, which is this uh, chapter all about genealogies, which is why most of us skip it. And the way it works is it says right at the beginning, it says that, Adam was made in the image of God, and in the same way, Seth, Adam's son, was made in the image of Adam. So there's something about this selim, this image, that not only does it get passed on from God to Adam, but it also gets passed on from parent to 
child. So this first word, demut, um, it has kind of the connotation of like a physical resemblance. Like you're kind of like the spitting image of somebody. Like you, when, when you look at them, you, you kind of see their, their parent in them. And so I, I want to show you this picture. This is me when I was nine years old. I know, I know. Every service they've had that and then a, what happened? Um, like such a cute kid. It all went wrong. And, but then uh, this next picture is a picture of my nine-year-old son. Do you see any demut? Is there any likeness there? And, and this, this is the connotation of this word demut, of likeness, that, that when God created us, his hope is that when we would walk around, people would say, you are the spitting image, that you resemble God, that there is something about what you look like as you move around and go in the world that people look at you and say, you are the spitting image of God. And so that is one aspect of how God has created us. But the second Hebrew word that we saw is this word selim, which is normally translated image. Now, this word has much more of a connotation of like your characteristics, your attributes, your passions. And what this looks like in my world is that I really believe that it is my responsibility, as uh, the Bible says, to train my child up in the way he should go, which means I have trained my child up to be a Twins fan, uh, as is appropriate, and as my responsibility as a father. I have also trained my children up to not trust Yankees fans. Um, I have also trained them up to um, grow in that passion. Um, so what that has looked like is like a month ago, my son Noah and I went to Seattle to watch the twins utterly demolish the Mariners, which was a joy and blessing. Um, and what I've noticed is that when Noah was born, when my son was born, like I, I, I started training him up in the way he should go and explaining to him how if you want to be holy and righteous in God's sight, you will cheer for the twins. And, and so he started out that way, but it grew, like the passion grew, the characteristic grew, the, grew, the attributes grew. And so there's this essential element of what it means to be made in the image of God, that the more we follow with God, the more our, our characteristics, our attributes, our passions, the things that break our heart are consistent with what breaks God's heart, what, what gets God excited. And so what it means to be made in the image of God is that our passions, as we grow, get closer and closer and more, more closely and intimately aligned with who God is. So we have these words, demut and zelem, but we also have this, this idea of the image of God showed up all over in the ancient world. And if somebody were in the ancient world to come to somebody and say, oh, that's the image of God. There's only one person that they would have been referencing, and the person they would have been referencing is the king. That if you wanted to know who the image of God was, the only appropriate person to call the image of God was the king of the land. And you see echoes of this throughout the ancient world, even in names like uh, the Egyptian king, King Tutankhamun. He's kind of a well-known one. His, his name literally means the living image of the god Amun. 
Because in the ancient world, if you wanted to know who the image of God was, the only person you could look at was the king. And this is where we start to see some of the covenantal revolutionary aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. Because when God says, you are made in my image, he democratizes the idea of being made in the image of God. That he says, it is not just for royalty that you are all royalty because I have given you my image. That there is nothing that you can do to earn it and there's nothing you can do to subtract from it. That God says, that is not just for the king anymore, that I'm giving it to everybody, which is why we talk around here so often about how every human being has unsurpassable worth. And the reason they have unsurpassable worth is because God said, you are made in my image and you get that identity for free and you can't do anything about it, that there are no if, ands, or buts, that, that you are created as a masterpiece no matter your faith, no matter your religion, no matter your political affiliation, no matter your gender identity, no matter anything that the world might put as a label on you, the truest thing about us is that we are made in the very image of God who says it is not different. That God says it is democratized. It is good news. It is the core of the gospel. And here's, here's where we run into a problem. And this is my question for me and for you. Who do you have a hard time picturing as the image of God? Who is it? Who do you have a hard time seeing as having unsurpassable worth? Myself, yeah, myself, my boss, <laughs> that ex who left you, a parent who wasn't there the way they should be, um, maybe it's our current president, maybe it's our former president, we are equal opportunity here, <laughs> that our challenge as followers of Christ is to do the work. And this is why scripture says that we are to have our mind renewed and to take every thought captive, to have to remember in every moment that no matter what we think about somebody, they have unsurpassable worth because they are made in the very image of God. And that is the process of discipleship. That we can't increase our worth and we can't decrease our worth because who God says we are is the core of who we are. And that is the first echo of covenant in Genesis 1 and 2, which leads to the second echo of covenant. And uh, it, it's in Genesis chapter 2, and it's interesting because the, there's kind of two creation stories in Genesis. There's Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 2, 3, which is a poetic version of the creation story from a cosmic perspective. So it's, it's looking at this from a bigger picture of all of creation and written in more of a poetic fashion. And then Genesis 2-4 to the end of chapter 2 is written in a narrative style, but from a more human-centric perspective. So it's trying to say, what does creation look like from the eyes of humans? So this is where we're going to look at in Genesis 2, starting in verse 7. It says, the Lord God formed man, which is the Hebrew word Adam. That's why we call him Adam, but essentially that word just means human. So the Lord God formed a human man from the dust of the ground, which is the Hebrew word Adamah. And this is meant to be a wordplay in Hebrew, that 
in case you started to think too much of yourself, just remember your very word, just your very name means dirt. Um, like all the ways you start thinking, boy, I got this all together. Just the reminder in your name, hey, Adam, I mean dirt, like that all the ways that we have a tendency to start thinking more of ourselves than we should is integrated into the Hebrew there. And then it goes on to say, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man, the Adam, that he had formed. Now, again, it's important to pay attention to what are the words that show up more than once. And the word that shows up more than once in this text is the word formed. The Lord God formed the man. And then again, there he put the man whom he had formed. There's something about this word formed that tells us something about our identity and our covenantal relationship with God. And what I think it tells us is that this word, when it shows up in the rest of Scripture, is used in a specific context. It's used in the context of a potter. Somebody who's working on clay on like a pottery wheel. And the the thing that we learn from this process, and I'm not artistic, so the thing I learned from watching this process, not doing this process, is that when somebody is making and forming a jar or a mug, that they're having to be pushing and moving and constantly kind of fiddling with and adjusting what's happening on this piece of clay. And like, I've held a piece of clay in my hand and when I smush it in my hand, when you pull your hands back, what do you see on the clay? Our fingerprints. That that God is saying, I'm not staying at a distance to form you, I am going to be so intimately involved that my hands are going to be dirty after it. That I'm not going to say, well, good luck, I hope this works out. That he's saying, no, I am going to be so in there with you that my fingerprints are going to be imprinted on you. That, that the goal of being made in the image of God is that we would so resemble the characteristics and passions and attributes of God that we would be imprinted with his very fingerprints because God gets in the mess with us. That this covenantal relationship is such that God says, I will be there with you. You see this in Jesus, who is the Emmanuel, who says, I'm going to be with you. That God has always been a God who is covenantal, who is relational, who is wanting to be intimately involved in the mess with us. Which leads us to our first echo of our kingdom responsibility because God creates us in an intimate way. He makes us in his image so that we would resemble him to the world, that we would have this opportunity to have our identity formed by God, but then he does it for a purpose so that we would have a job to do because we have a vocation that we are responsible for. And we see the first echo of this in Genesis 1.28. It says, God blessed them, the man and the woman, This is right after he said, I'm making you in my image. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So there's something about being made in the image of God that establishes who we are in relationship with God, but then unleashes us into a vocational responsibility. That that we are told that we are to have dominion over creation. We are told that we are to be fruitful and multiply, which 
in the context of the ancient world, would have been rather shocking and confusing because in the other creation stories that existed in the ancient world, what, what, what they were told about what the gods were meaning to do when they created humanity was they were essentially just looking for some slaves. They were looking for somebody who could do their dirty work for them. They were looking for somebody who, like, the, there's all these texts that uh, in the ancient world and other um, ancient creation myths that talk about this concern the gods had that humans would get too populated, that they might be a little noisy and bother them or wake them up while they're trying to take a nap, um, that, that there was this sense that they were to be responsible for creation but only to the extent that it allowed them to, like, get a snack for the gods. Like, their only purpose was this simplistic idea that they would just be a slave to the gods. And yet, there is something here about having loving dominion that empowers us with a sense of vocation in this world. That being made in the image of God confers responsibility. It confers dignity. It confers a capacity to mirror God and the creator in the world, which, which naturally makes me think of Willy Wonka. I know you were thinking it, so I thought I'd go there first, but here's the thing. There's this book and movie called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. If you have not seen it, I don't know where you've been, but here's the thing. The basis of the story is that Willy Wonka is a chocolatier, and he has this chocolate factory he has been building for years and years and years, and he needs somebody else to run it, so he puts the golden tickets into the chocolate, and the chocolate bars get sent out, and, the, and some kids find it, and they come, and they think they're there just to go on a tour of the factory, but Willy Wonka's got an agenda, right? He's trying to find an heir. He's trying to find somebody who can take the responsibility of running the factory for him. And so he goes through this uh, intricate process of torturing children to eliminate the herd. Um, and he makes his way to Charlie. And when Charlie is the only one left, he sits before Willy Wonka. And Willy says, yeah, you did a great job. And this factory's yours now. You get to have the responsibility for it. Which in a small, very small way, is similar to what God was doing, except the difference is that God says, I don't need a resume, I don't need to torture you, I don't need an interview, and I don't need a background check, and yeah, by the way, I'm going to give that responsibility to everybody. That God says, it says in Psalm 8, 6, that God put us in charge of his handcrafted world. That God said, I am going to unleash all of you to care for this world. That if, if we can get the gravity of this, I think it will change the way we see creation. That if we can get the fact that like God created a masterpiece in the created world and then he just handed it over to one of his creations and said, yeah, yeah, you Adama." You Adam from the Adama, you human from the dirt. Yeah, why don't you take care of this for me? That seems like a great idea. What could possibly go wrong? And yet this is how God acts because this is what God is like. And you see it over and over in the story of Scripture. You see it in the story of Jesus who inaugurates the kingdom of God and then hands it off to a bunch of guys that had shown absolutely no reason to hand it off to them that had just screwed up over and over and over and over, and God says, yeah, this will work. I'm going to empower you with my kingdom. And this is what kingdom responsibility looks like in Scripture, that God says, I'm going to create a masterpiece, and then I'm going to empower you 
to run it for me, which is a massive job, but it only can happen if we get our covenantal relationship, if we get who God says we are, and we don't have to worry about playing the perfection game of like, well, gosh, I screwed it up again. Oh, I screwed it up again. But God believes in you. He believes that he has given you what you need. He has given us what we need to steward this creation in the way he longs for it to be stewarded. Which leads us to the second echo of kingdom responsibility in Genesis 2.15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it, which is the word avad, and to keep it, which is the word shamar. Now, these words by themselves, avad and shamar, they, they can be used on their own to refer to like an agricultural task. They could refer to like tilling the land. They could refer to cultivating, to working, to caring over, to watching. But what's interesting is that in the rest of the Old Testament, the only times these two words get used together is in one specific context. And the only context we see these words in tandem with each other is the responsibility of the priests to care for the temple. So the responsibility of the priests in the temple was they were to cultivate it, they were work it, they were to tend over it, they were to care for it, they were to watch it. And the question is, why in this context of our kingdom responsibility to care for creation are these two words showing up again that only ever show up in the priestly responsibility in the temple? And I think what's underneath the surface here is that it is hearkening to our sacred task over a sacred space because creation itself is the first temple of God. That if we want to know where is a place where the presence of God is literally soaked into the very dirt, it is the creation that God gave us. That God says, this is not just something that is going to be used up and go away at some point. That God says, I have a task for you and it is to care lovingly with dominion and to steward this created world that I have given you. Which changes how we care for creation, I think. That, that caring over the created world is not peripheral to God. That that is central to what it means to have a kingdom responsibility. That it is central to what it means to follow God. That I, I saw this quote uh, in between services that I loved by Brian Zond. He says, I dream of a church that is at home in God's good world rather than anxiously huddling and waiting at the departure gate that we dream, that we might be so invested in caring for this creation that what could it look like if people came to Woodland Hills and says, you know, those are those tree huggers for Jesus. Because they don't see caring for the world as peripheral. They don't see recycling as a peripheral task. They don't see caring for animals as a peripheral task. They don't see consuming less as a peripheral task. But it is all intricately bound up in what it means to be made in the image of God and to have a kingdom responsibility to steward this incredible handcrafted world that God has lovingly given to us. That I, I think sometimes the church has, has done a disservice to the world by saying that, well, you know, this is all just going to burn up at the end. Why should we really care? And yet God says the core of your task, the core of your responsibility is to leave the campsite better than when you found it. 
is to care for the created world in such a way that you honor the responsibility that God has given us. If you're interested in this topic, I would highly recommend a book called Serve God, Save the Planet. Uh, by Matthew Sleeth, um, which I think does a great job of dealing with the myths that the church has really just uh, grown more and more over time and reminding us what are the simple things we can do to partner with God in caring for creation, which is not peripheral to our responsibility. Which leads to our last section of Scripture, uh, which starts in Genesis 2, 18. And here's what it says. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And if if you've been reading from the beginning of Genesis 1, there should be buzzers going off in our head because the refrain over and over in the Genesis 1 creation story is, God created, it was good. 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 And this is the first time we ever see the word not connected with what God created, that it was not Good. And the thing that is not good is that the man is alone. Which leads to this next section that says, And I will make him a helper as his partner, which is this compound Hebrew word, Ezer Konegdo. And so God says, the, the man, the Adam, the dirt clod, needs somebody to hang out with him. And So he says, I'm going to make you a partner, Uh, but it doesn't immediately tell us who the partner is. So it goes on to say, so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds and the animals, but for the man, there was not found a helper as his Ezer Konegdo, as his helper, as a partner. Which, like, I, I love the buildup in this story. Like, we're told the man needs a partner, but then we proceed to not get a partner for the man. Like, it's, it goes into the story to try and get us to anticipate, I wonder who that partner's going to be. I wonder who the helper is going to be. Now, it's interesting because you see already in this story this sense of kingdom responsibility where Adam is given the responsibility to name the animals, which is not just about naming, it is about giving an identity to those animals, having authority over those animals. Like, it, it made me think, like, what, what, um, what would I have done if after we had our, our first child, Junia, and we told her, all right, Junia, we're going to have two more boys, so why don't you just name them for us? Like, I, <laughs> I wonder what their names would be. Um, it would be very interesting, but it's It's as if God says, I'm going to give you the authority, the kingdom responsibility to have, uh, to be able to convey identity over these animals. But but, but then it goes on to say that they're looking for this helper, this Ezer Konegdo for Adam. Now, this word, helper, has been used by the church for hundreds and thousands of years to tell women that they need to always be inferior to men. That this word has been seen as, a, as like an demeaning, demoting, inferior place that women have. And you, you can see this throughout church history where we have so some, of, so some of our most well-known authors, like Tertullian in the second century, who says, all women share the shame of Eve. Like Eve, all women are the devil's gateway. 
the unsealer of that forbidden fruit, the first deserter of the divine law who destroyed God's image, man. Or Ambrose, a fourth-century bishop who refers to Eve as a procreative helper for the purpose of generating human nature and concludes that this then is the way in which a woman is a good helper but of less importance. Or Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century who claimed that women were defective by nature, misbegotten males, born female because of some defect in the active force or maternal disposition, or because of some external forces such as a moist south wind. I don't know what that means, but I think I should be offended by it. It, uh, This is an area where oftentimes the church says, how do we not get corrupted by culture as we try and stay true to the kingdom of God. But this is an area where the church needs to be led by culture. Where in the midst of a culture that is reminding us that women's stories matter. That women's stories are just as, if not more important than men's stories in our culture right now. Where they have been silenced for a long time and the church has not helped in that game. That the church has fallen into the same trap of believing that this idea of a helper is, is somehow demeaning or to demote somebody or to make somebody inferior to them. But what's fascinating is that this word ezer konegdo, this word helper, the only other person it refers to in scripture, because this is the only spot it, women are called the helper. The rest of the 30 times when this word Ezer shows up in Scripture, who do you think it's talking about? God. That the helper is God. That if you want to know what the helper looks like, look at what God does. Look at how he comes alongside humanity. Look at how he breathes life into humanity. Look at how he restores what is broken in humanity. Look at how he he shapes what had been lost and brings them back to life again. That this is what the helper is. This is what the helper does. And if that is what the helper is, then I don't think it has any connotation around demeaning or being inferior to somebody else. That What we want to proclaim around here is that this is a helper, but it is a helper that is a strength corresponding to the man. That it is not a sense of like the woman is derivative of the man. That if you do that, you forget that remember the Adam came from the dirt. Remember that we are all derivative and that we were all given an equal share in the image of God. That it doesn't say, yes, men, you were made in the image of God, but women, you're kind of like God's Alexa. Like, you just kind of, you know, answer questions or help with stuff when you need it. No! Like, everybody was created with the fullness of the image of God. And here's what I know about us as a church. We need the gifts of the women here. We need them. It is not a peripheral issue that, and it is not a, well, we need you to do gifts that are, you know, always under the authority of a man. No, we need you to lead Like we need you to show up and use every gift that God has given you because the church cannot convey the fullness of the image of God without you. It cannot happen. And what I also want to say is that for the women in this room that have grown up in churches that have reminded you or emphasized to you over and over that your gifts don't matter, I'm sorry. That... They matter. They're needed. The gifts that the Spirit of God gave you are in no way inferior to anybody else's. 
So my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a place that empowers everybody in their gifts with no qualifications. Amen? Okay, done with parenthesis. All right, so Genesis 2 in 21, we need to find out who the helper is. So here's the, the next section. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, which in the rest of Scripture, whenever God puts somebody to sleep, pay attention. Something interesting is going to happen. And he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, which is the word Isha. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone. So this is the first words a human says. This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called Isha, woman. For out of man, which now man is not called Adam, he is called Ish. This one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, there is a lot in this text. Now, the, the first thing I want to point out is that throughout the story, we've been talking about how the first human created was Adam. And this is the first time that the Adam is called Ish. Because Adam is just kind of this generic word for human, but it is only in his relationship with the woman, the Isha, that he notices his own identity as a man, Ish. That, that there is something about community coming together in covenantal relationship that allows us to know who we really are. That when we show up with, in the midst of a covenantal relationship where we can be honest and transparent and take down the masks and stop hiding our junk, that when we do that, we can start actually seeing who we are. That the man notices, oh, I'm a man. I'm not just a human anymore. That like there's something in differentiation, in equality that allows us to see who we are. But there's also this, this truth that we see in here that, that the man was still alone until the woman came because there is something about being made in the image of God that cannot be settled in fully without covenant relationships. That if we want to fully image the triune God, we can't do it as Lone Ranger Christians. That if I want to image God thoughtfully, it can only happen in covenantal relationships. And, and the example we're given here is of the first covenantal relationship, which was marriage. But covenantal relationships can happen in marriage. They can happen outside of marriage. They can happen with a brother or sister. It can happen with anybody with whom you share that identity of who God has made you to be and you show up vulnerably and transparently in a way that you're not afraid of what they're going to think of you. Can you imagine what it would look like for us to be in covenantal relationships to the extent that I don't feel like I have to hide who I really am? That, that you would know all the things that go through my head that are distorted, that don't look like Jesus, and that you would still say, I'm with you. I'm for you. Like, there is something deeply sacred about that. Like, have you ever been in the context of a conversation where somebody finally decides to say what's really going on? To finally proclaim what is really true about this? That there, you could almost hear a pin drop. 
that I think we long for it because what God's beautiful vision from the beginning was that we would be able to be in covenantal relationships, to be honest about who we are, to stop hiding because it is only in that moment that we can fully live out our kingdom responsibility and our vocation because we stop trying to play the game. We stop trying to pretend we've got it figured out because we know that who God says we are is the most important thing that, about us. And it helps us to be brave, to walk in our kingdom vocation because we know who we are. We know who we are with God and we know who we are with others. So, to make a long story short, God's vision from the beginning was that we would know who we are as image bearers that we would walk in that covenantal relationship with God where we know what our identity is because God gave it to us and out of that truth, we would live out our vocation in the world. That we would breathe life and beauty into this kingdom that he has given us to be responsible over. So as we close, I wanna, I wanna ask you a couple questions. And I think these are questions that I would encourage you to be thinking about throughout the summer as we talk about this question of what, are, what is our covenant relationship with God and what's our kingdom responsibility? And the first question is, where might God be calling us to engage more deeply in covenant relationships? Where are the places where we live daily without accountability, without encouragement, without support. Because we can't truly image God if we're living that way. And this is why we have ministries here like Cultivate. This is why we have ministries here like Echo. This is why we have ministries here like The Refuge and Wednesdays Together and Discover the Kingdom and Sojourners and Soma. That they're ministries, but underneath them is this reality that we need covenantal relationships and that we can't do this alone. And so uh, my question is, where might God be asking you to take a next step in walking into what can feel like a scary place but to say, yes, I'm going to start showing up with my true self with other people. Which then leads to the next question, where are we living out our kingdom calling? Where are the things that your heart breaks for what God's heart breaks? And what is he calling you to do about it? Like may, maybe there's some of you who are passionate about creation care and, and maybe there are some of you who are passionate about clean water and maybe there are some of you who are passionate about caring for those in our congregation and in our, in our community who are struggling with homelessness or addiction and, and maybe you've been sensing this calling over you and you've sort of like taken just a little step into it and God's saying, what would it look like for you to jump in? To say, all right, God, I know this is not peripheral, that you have a task for me to do and you have empowered me to do it. So I wonder as we go through this summer where God might be calling you out, where God might be encouraging you to trust him that as you walk forward, he's going to give you what you need to do it. And what's beautiful about this is that in order to image God well in a covenantal relationship and a kingdom responsibility, we have the perfect example of how to do this that we get to look to. Because Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the very image, the tselem of the invisible God. 
And so our responsibility starts by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we can then be told who we are and be given and empowered to our task as kingdom followers. So my prayer for us is that we would be the kind of people as we go into this summer series together who can honestly ask the question, Jesus, am I remembering who I am? Am I remembering what it means for me to be made in the image of God? And God, where do you want to unleash me? What do you have for me? And I think it can change us as a community. I think it can change us as a city. If we would be the covenant-related people with God who walk out our kingdom responsibility because it is an immense and beautiful calling. Amen? Amen? So, would you stand with me as we close? And I'm going to invite our, our prayer teams to come up. They'll be at the stairs here. If there's anything that, that you would like prayer, they would love to pray with you. If, if you have never had an introduction to this Jesus, who is the very revelation and perfect image of God, they would love to introduce you to him. So as we close, I'm going to invite you, if you're willing, to just put your hands out like this. I want to speak a benediction over you. So now, may the God who from the very beginning said that you have unsurpassable worth, may that God, in whose image you were created, breathe life into the places that feel dead, and may that God, who has given you a responsibility in creation, empower you to walk out your calling in this world as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And may you be reminded this day and this week that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love because you've got all that you could ever want. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Thanks for being here.